You know, church, Jesus made incredibly bold claims about himself. They were threatening and offensive to some, and they were life-giving and beautiful to others. And the same is true today. Well, what did Jesus say about himself? And what witnesses did he provide to back it all up? In John chapter 5, verses 16 through 47, we have this firsthand testimony of Jesus. And, and no one is left guessing what he believed about himself, but all of us are left to evaluate what we believe about him and what we're going to do about it. And so let's read it in John 5, beginning in verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's pause. What are these things? He had just healed a, a paralyzed man who had been crippled for 38 years. He told him to get up and take his mat and walk. And he did it on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, we invite you to have your way in our hearts today. We thank you for your word. We pray that you direct us, that you put your finger on areas of our lives for our good, out of love, that you would, Lord, help us, lead us to places of of, of deeper faith, ignite within us a passion for who you are, God, for the reality of who you are and how you have chosen to reveal yourself. We trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things will help us walk through this, this text, this monologue that Jesus gives. One, the accusations against Jesus Two, the claims of Jesus, and three, the witnesses backing up Jesus' claims. So first, we see the accusations against Jesus. And we need to back up just a little bit in John chapter 5, back to verse 5, where we find a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years, who experienced literally a lifetime of hopes and dreams that were just crushed. It says in verse 6 that Jesus saw him, and Jesus took the initiative to seek out this man in the midst of his brokenness and frustration. There would have been maybe hundreds of invalids, of individuals with all kinds of various uh, diseases and and brokenness, paralysis and blindness hanging, hanging around this pool. And every time the pool bubbled, they would try to make their way into the pool believing that its waters somehow would heal them. This man could never get to the pool. And so Jesus finds him. It's like he looks for the most broken of them all, the one who'd been there the longest. Jesus takes the initiative and goes to him, and he asks him, do you want to be healed? In other words, is this what you really want? Do you want to be made whole? And his response is, I've got no one. I have got no one, no one to bring me to the pool. He had Jesus. And in verse 8, Jesus commands him to take up his mat and walk. And a word was all it took. This man hears the enabling command of Jesus and responds with obedience. You know, the same is true for any of us in this room who have placed our faith in Jesus. We hear the enabling command of Jesus and respond with obedience. And then in verses 9 through 15, we discover that Jesus healed this man on a Sabbath, a day of rest. And the religious leaders are extremely upset that Jesus not only did this on the Sabbath, but he told this man to carry his bed, to carry his mat. Verse 16 says this is why they were persecuting Jesus. And we might read this and think, really? 
I mean, come on, what's the big deal? It was a big deal. The Sabbath was put in place to highlight the seventh day of creation where God rested. He he declared it is finished. And it was a holy day, a day set apart for rest. It was an expression of trust and faith in God. It was an expression of worship. But look, there was nothing in Scripture forbidding this man to carry his mat the way he did. But in Jesus' day, this group of religious leaders, and even way before Jesus' time, there were these um, traditions set up to guard the Sabbath even beyond what Scripture would, would ask for. And so in their view, Jesus was not obeying the law, the law of God, as they understood it, the law according to their traditions. And worse than that, he's encouraging another person to disobey. And so all these religious leaders could see was the broken command. They're totally preoccupied with their traditions. They were putting their traditions above genuine love and compassion for this man who was healed. And so that's the scene. And Jesus deliberately heals this man on the Sabbath. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and when he was doing it. Not only had they forgotten what the Sabbath was originally intended to be all about, which was a day of of grace and blessing to man for physical and spiritual renewal, but the religious leaders failed to recognize the new creation life that Jesus was announcing with every healing and every demonic deliverance where Jesus is showing his power and authority to bring life, new life. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Then, Jesus goes on to say something so startling. My father is working until now, and I am working. My father, no one talked this way. This, the implication here is that of close intimacy, a close intimate relationship. And then he goes on to say that my father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, God the Father is working. He's active all the time. He is sovereign overall. He sustains the whole universe. He's holding all creation together, and, and guess what? Yeah, I'm working too, just like my father. And so here's what Jesus is doing in this statement. He is placing his own work, his own activity on the Sabbath on the same level as the father on the same level as creator. And so, the religious leaders hear this, and in verse 18, they say this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't say, oh no, hold on, time out. You guys have this all wrong. That, that's not my intention here. No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he, he takes it even further. He, he actually doesn't deny their suspicions, does he? He goes on to reinforce his claims so that there's no doubt in their minds or ours what Jesus believes about himself. And I love this text, what I just read to us minutes ago, because we are hearing from Jesus himself what he believes about himself. We're going to the source Never mind what other people believe about Jesus. What does he believe? What were his claims? 
And that's what we have next, the claims of Jesus, what Jesus believed about himself. And he, he begins this way, truly, truly. This is a way to highlight or to put an exclamation point. It's a way of, of saying, pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. Truly, truly. And then in verses 19 through 20, what he begins is he's emphasizing the fact that he is not at all acting independently from the Father. Not at all. He is not some kind of rival, lowercase g, God in any way whatsoever. Jesus brings out the depth of relationship and love between Father and Son. And so he's affirming a number of things in these two verses. He's affirming distinction and the unique roles of Father and Son. And it's important for us to note the love relationship between father and son. Then, in verse 21, Jesus gets right to it and claims to be the giver of life. And then in verse 22, he claims to be the judge of all. And then in verse 23, he claims to be the one worthy of adoration, of honor, worthy of worship. He goes so far to say that those who don't honor him don't honor the father who sent him. I'm sorry, who talks like this? In other words, what he's saying is the Father and the Son share the same divine nature and deserve the same honor or adoration. Now, wait a minute. Isn't God the one who raises the dead to life? Isn't God the judge of all the earth? Isn't God the only one worthy of praise? Aren't these abilities and privileges that belong exclusively to God? Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or what about Isaiah 45? We can go there together. In Isaiah 45, verse 22, the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah, 700 years now before Jesus, and he says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance to me is what God is saying. And he's, he's confident, he's firm about this fact. Turn with me now to Philippians chapter two. As Paul writes about the death of Jesus on our behalf, how Jesus emptied himself, how he took the form of a servant, how he took on the likeness of man, how he was found in human form, how Jesus humbled himself even by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Verse nine of Philippians two, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is Isaiah 45 language. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Isaiah 45 language. So when Jesus receives honor, the Father's glory isn't compromised in any way. His glory actually isn't being given to another. He receives honor as the son receives honor. And so, remember what we have here. First, pers first person testimony 
of Jesus. Jesus claiming, saying what he believes about himself. And so we're going directly to the source. He's claiming to have power and authority to give life. He's claiming power and authority to be judge of all the earth. And he's claiming power and authority enough that he is worthy to be honored and and worshiped. And so either he is some kind of rival God or he's actually the giver of life. Is he the giver of life? Either he's the giver of life, the judge overall, worthy of honor, or he isn't. He's something else. If Jesus is not the son of God, if Jesus is not God in flesh, if he's not who he claims to be, because that's who he claims to be here, he's delusional. He's a liar, or he's something worse. And we really should just pack up our things and go home. C.S. Lewis, he says it this way, um, author and theologian, it's a famous quote. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You ever talk to someone and they're like, yeah, he was a great teacher. Really? Have you read his teaching? Go with me back to John chapter five. Look what Jesus says. Verse 24, truly, truly. What's he saying here? Pay very close attention to what I'm about to say next. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, do you hear the invite? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, age to come life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Amazing. Truly, truly, Pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So here Jesus' words are placed on the same level of importance as believing the Father. And he speaks of this passing from death to life as if it's happening. He says an hour is coming and is now, it's here. It's already here when the dead, in other words, when the spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Mm. It's an echo of what he's already been saying. 
John 1. John 3, when he met with Nicodemus. John 4, when he was with that woman at the well. Have you experienced this age-to-come life that Jesus gives, that Jesus alone brings? Have you experienced eternal life in Christ Jesus? Now, I'm not talking about just a ticket to get you into the pearly gates, into heaven. I'm not talking about life, fire insurance, right? Like, so that you simply just don't go to hell. I'm talking about an experience where you are forgiven your sin, made right before a holy God, and brought into a living, breathing relationship with him, where you by faith put your trust wholly on Jesus, what he accomplished on your behalf, because he did for you what you could not do for yourself. And then you're, you're, you're leaning on his enabling command when he says to put his faith in him, and you do it. You're trusting in what he did. You're laying down your sin, your shame. You're taking on his righteousness by faith. And then you're set on this new course of being made new in in Christ Jesus. What Trevor spoke of last Sunday, Colossians chapter three language, now that we're identified in Christ, now we can, we clothe ourselves in Christ Jesus. We walk in love and forgiveness and holiness and purity, empowered by the reality of who we've become in Christ. Have you received this? eternal life, this age to come life that begins now and will carry on forever. It's offered to you. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verse three, God speaks through Isaiah this way, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. And then the prophet Ezekiel We sang about it this morning, dry bones coming to life. That imagery is from Ezekiel chapter 37 where the prophet Ezekiel saw this vision of this dry bone valley, just this valley filled with dry bones, skeletons. And the spirit of God comes and brings life to what was dead. It says in Ezekiel 37 verse four, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, whoever hears my word. Then in verse 27 of John 5, Jesus is given authority to carry out final judgment. And it says, because he is the son of man. Now that term, let me tell you, that term is loaded with meaning, with prophetic fulfillment. And everyone should mark Daniel chapter 7 in their Bibles. Let's go to Daniel 7. This language of the Son of Man is rooted in the prophet Daniel, where he has a vision, and it, it goes this way. Verse 13, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, to the Lord, and was presented before him, And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, his reign, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, it's it's one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's me. That's me. Man, 
again, that's good news for us. God's just judgment on the forces of tyranny and evil that have oppressed God's people find their judgment will be met by God in Christ Jesus. Think about what happens on the cross. Our sin and shame placed on Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. The evil and tyranny that we subjected ourselves to, we find freedom through Christ, through the work of redemption that he accomplished on the cross. He takes it from us and gives us new life, new identity, forgiveness of sins. Now look with me in John 5, verse 29. It almost appears that this is a work-based thing in verse 29. Those who have done good, they come out to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's important for us to recognize that our works are not the root of our faith, but our works are the fruit of our faith. There's a big difference. Our good works, it's not the root of our faith, it's the fruit of our faith. The very root of our faith is is the work of Jesus on our behalf. And with our lives rooted in the truth of who he is, then we show forth that we are alive in Christ Jesus. So what has Jesus said up to this point? Well, he's said a lot, but we have something really clear here that he believes that he is equal, equal but distinct from the Father, that he is the giver of life, that he is the judge of all, and he's worthy of worship. And so then he calls on witnesses to back up these claims in verses 31 through 47. Now, when we pick up a book to read it, we oftentimes, the first thing we do would be read the endorsements on the front and the back, the inside flap, and who endorses the book and what they say about the book. It matters, right? It might even determine whether or not we're going to read the book. And so here, this is what Jesus is doing. He's calling on these endorsements in a way, these these witnesses to back up what claims he's making about himself. In Jewish law, an individual's testimony wasn't enough to prove a point. And so he had to call upon independent witnesses to back up what he was saying. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And he begins with this one who he calls another, who bears witness. He speaks of the father's faithful and true testimony in verse 32. And then in verse 33, he calls on John the Baptist who had borne witness. By this time, he was either imprisoned and maybe even had been killed. But John's preaching prepared the way for Jesus. And Jesus is saying about John that it's like you were sitting in darkness and John's preaching was like a lamp that brought the light that you desperately needed. The light came on. And then in verse 36, we see that the works that the Father has given me, Jesus said, to accomplish, they bear witness. And we've learned this already through the the teaching of John that the signs or the miracles, the works that Jesus was doing highlighted who he is and why he came. But church, we will learn further on in John that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, which is his greatest work of all, would become the greatest evidence backing up his claims. And then in verse 37, it says the, talks about the Father having borne witness In another gospel account, we hear Jesus' voice, or the Father's voice at Jesus' baptism, rather. But also, 
the Father is bearing witness through the works of Christ, the miracles of Christ, but also through the scriptures themselves. Now, all of this has felt a bit like a, a trial with Jesus on the stand, but now he turns it around. He turns it around. He says in verse 38, oh, but you don't have the Father's word abiding in you. In other words, he tells the leaders, and really those who are listening, his word isn't alive in your heart. His word isn't directing your decisions, your passions, and your desires. And then he says, verse 39, the scriptures bear witness about me. And not just a select few verses either. The whole storyline of the Bible is bearing witness about Jesus. And this is why after his death and resurrection, he appeared to the disciples, and you can read about it in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he told them everything that the scriptures were saying about himself. So imagine studying the scriptures all your life and hearing Jesus say this. You're a leader, you're a scholar, and you hear from Jesus that that you missed it. In all your careful study, you missed the point of it all. It's no wonder they wanted to kill Jesus. This wouldn't be easy to hear. There's warning here for us, church. We can know what the Bible says and not be moved by it, not be moved by its claims. We can argue, we can enter academic debate and not be shaped by Scripture. We can win an argument, but it not change our hearts. The study of Scripture can become a substitute, actually, for delighting in God. And so is our knowledge of Scripture bringing us into places of adoration and prayer and expressed worship? Is it? Then in verse 44, Jesus calls them out on yet another thing. They were more interested in the praise that they received from their own group than they were in seeking the praise that comes from God, the glory that comes from God. There's warning there for us. But imagine, look, being told that you're more interested in what people think of you, in your own peers, what they think of you. You're more interested in in being well thought of by them, of seeming right in other people's eyes than in God's. When all along you're wrong in God's eyes. So whose opinion matters most to you? Who are you trying to impress and please? Have you found a group that accepts you and that will applaud the things that you do but they're contrary to scripture. Who are you trying to please? There's warning here. And then, and then finally, verses 45 through 47, he says, Moses wrote of me. Moses was seen as this intercessor in Israel's day, and he was. Many saw him continuing in that role as an advocate, but Jesus says this, no, he's not your advocate. He is your accuser. Moses is your accuser. Now, when he says Moses, we're talking the first five books of the Bible that were believed to be written by Moses. But but Jesus is exposing hearts here. Jesus is exposing the hearts of those who stood against him. Because at the end of the day, it's not about a lack of external evidence. It's about a hardness of heart. It's about an internal struggle. And Jesus confronts that head on right here. And so his monologue ends. And it's as if those who were accusing him, those who were standing around him, accusing him, like just disappear. 
and we are left considering the claims of Jesus ourselves. The reader, you and I, and every reader since this was written. What do you believe about Jesus? This was written for you. What do you believe about Jesus and what are you doing about it? How are you responding to Jesus' claims to be the giver of life, the judge of all, the one worthy of worship? You know, there's no room for neutrality. No one can remain neutral, impartial, or unbiased when it comes to the claims of Jesus. It's simply not an option. So here Jesus has made incredibly bold claims. They were threatening and offensive to some. They were life-giving and beautiful to others. And no one is left guessing what Jesus believed about himself, but all of us today, right now, here and now, local church, we are left to evaluate what we believe about Jesus and what we're going to do about it, what we are doing about it, how we're living in response to it. And so my prayer has been that the claims of Jesus would ignite just a fire in our hearts for who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Or it would reignite. Reignite a passion for who he is. You know, Trevor talked last week, it was so good, about our identity being wrapped up in Christ Jesus. And how we, we're clothed now with a new way of, of living to walk in love and forgiveness, holiness, and all that grows out of our faith in Jesus. But if we don't know who Jesus is, really, truly, who he is, who he claimed to be, I mean, what are we believing about Jesus? And, and that's what John is laying out. Do you know who Jesus really is? Are you bowing your life to him? Are you, you recognizing that he, he deserves your allegiance, your life? And then we have the opportunity around us to bring others by the hand to the Jesus of the Bible and show them who Jesus is. Maybe you've embraced Christ. Maybe you believe all of these things about Jesus. But I'm sure that you have friends who don't have really a clue or they haven't investigated for themselves. And so this is a beautiful passage to bring them to. And it can seem a little jumbled, a little confusing at times, but if you slowly walk through it and say, look what Jesus actually believes about himself. And this is what followers of Jesus are, are believing about Jesus. And so this is good for us. What are you doing about it? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what we've learned of you through your son, Thank you for Jesus, who is the giver of life, the judge of all, and the one worthy of honor and praise. Help us to respond in a way that is appropriate. <laughs> Help us, Lord, to refuse to, to be casual or complacent. Instead, we pray that the claims that Jesus has made would ignite or reignite a passion for who he really is and inspire a response in all of us, that it would shape us as individuals and as a community.
Father, for those who have been more casual in their approach to Christ, Lord, I pray that, Lord, they would be humbled and shaken out of their complacency in this very moment. That your words, that the claims of Jesus would be like fuel poured out onto the flames of our faith and worship. And that it would ignite or reignite the appropriate response to who he is. In Jesus' name, amen.